0: The once-high-flying Seahawks are skidding into the holidays, having lost four of their last five games. With a huge challenge awaiting them in Kansas City this weekend, Mike and I discussed the shifting expectations surrounding Seattle and their enduring upside. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to The Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my ostentatious producer, Mike Barwin, this is The Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today?
1: We're doing well, we're feeling good. Nothing negative has happened in the last several days whatsoever. <laughs> it's fucking cold, but we're we're surviving, Jackson. How are you?
0: We are, man. Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, Like I always say, my complaints aren't real complaints. And uh, you know, it's the holiday season. Like a lot of you listening out there, Mike and I are getting ready to spend some time with family, finish up our shopping, settle in for a cozy weekend of football. That said, we did want to pop in with a quick episode and talk a little ball with y'all before Christmas. And for the fourth time in the last five weeks, the Seahawks have lost. They saw their once-throbbing playoff hopes <laughs> dwindle to a murmur. And this last matchup saw the 49ers clinch the NFC West on Seattle's home field with a 21-13 victory The drop to the Seahawks to 500 for the first time in two months. And look, that loss felt a bit more inevitable than the few that preceded it. I actually thought the Seahawks put up a good fight, all things considered. But it was a reminder of the gap between them and the teams that occupy the NFL's elite tier, like the 49ers. It's weird to say that an eight-point loss kind of feels like progress. But given the way both Seattle and San Francisco were playing coming into this one, especially with the 49ers absolutely demolishing some pretty good teams of late, I actually felt okay by how tethered to them the Seahawks remained throughout this game.
1: Yeah, it it was an odd one. Because, you know, a couple big plays kind of skewed it. The 49ers were obviously the better team, right? I don't think that that's in dispute at all. Uh, I was fairly pleased with how the Seahawks' defense handled this game. Yeah. Like, yeah. weirdly, weirdly satisfied with the results. And, you know, uh, there were a couple, of, uh, a couple of moments that definitely swung things in San Francisco's favor, which, you know, I think we definitely expected before the game. Um, and you'll, you'll mention it, but the score definitely could have been a higher disparity at the end, but, but you know, the way that the Seahawks have handled the 49ers over the past decade kind of gives you that, you know, sense of confidence going into these matchups and both matchups in the 2022 season have been straight up ass kickings, just full blown butt whoopings. And it's just like. I really find it kind of poetic that even in a year that the 49ers are at their best in maybe eight or nine years, eight or nine seasons that they still managed to lose to Russell Wilson in the worst (laughs) year of his career.
0: (laughs) They still managed to fuck that one up somehow. That's hilarious. I totally forgot about that. And it's so true, man. Yeah. You know, I agree. I think this iteration of the 49ers is the best uh, since, you know, they went to the Super Bowl under Harbaugh. You know, that that team that faced the Ravens in the Harbaugh Bowl was amazing and and I do think they were the best team in the NFL that year. I think this team's every bit as good as that team was. Um, you know, they're lacking some of the dynamic quarterback play that that team had with Colin Kaepernick, but the identity is similar. This defense is honestly, I think it's the best defense the NFL has seen since the Legion of Boom era Seahawks. Um, and, and you know, you mentioned it. Yeah, the the score could have been a lot bigger. You know, the, the deficit or margin of victory could have been a lot larger than it was because, yes, it was 21-13 the Niners also did down the clock out at the end of the game at Seattle's one yard line,
1: the look of just <laughs> distress on that running back's face. When he got chased down, yes. he wanted that. Yes. He wanted oh, that to yeah. so bad. Oh, oh yeah. And I, don't, so I don't blame him. him. I
0: know that like the right move or whatever is to, you know, go down there and Michael and whatnot, Jackson, but.
1: preserving the margin of victory, <laughs>
0: right? Preserving
1: totally. scoring differential.
0: So, you know, there's, there's that there's the pick six that should not have been overturned. I thought that would, I thought that was kind of a bullshit sure. penalty sure. against Nick Bosa. I'm not, you know, you, you say it every week somewhere in the NFL. You're just not sure what defensive players are supposed to do when they hit a quarterback. So, you know, there th- that's another couple of touchdowns that could have been. I will say, though, that score was 7-3 to three late in the second quarter, and Quandre Diggs dropped the easiest interception he'll ever have in his career. I mean, Brock Purdy threw it straight to him at midfield. And if he comes down with that, I mean, it was third down. So the Niners had to punt anyway, but there wasn't that much time left. And if he catches that, it's a four point game and you're a first down away from field goal range. You have a chance to either get within one or take the lead going into halftime. Instead, you get pinned down and then cover your ears, Mike. Sorry, what happened? Who? (laughs) What? (laughs) You get the Travis Homer fumble. Here's what I will say. In our beloved Travis Homer's defense, because man, he's, he's really grown on me.
1: That was a gracious use of the word hour. Thank you for that.
0: The yeah. Drake Greenlaw hit him with so much ferocity and at such an angle. I I think everybody is fumbling that it, it reminded me of the hit in the really cold playoff game against the Vikings that cam chancellor put on uh, Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson never fumbles. And on that play, you know, Peterson was getting hit by someone else, just like Homer was in this one. And then Chancellor came in at a different angle and not only like hit him, but hit and kind of twisted the arm uh, where the ball was being held and, and the ball popped loose. And that's what it, that's what it takes to create a fumble from Adrian Peterson. That was the same kind of hit. I think everybody's fumbling that football, but the fact remains, you've got a totally different play call script. If Quandary Diggs makes that interception, um, you're not pressing the same, the same way. And even if you do get that turnover, it's not right in scoring range. You know, that that fumble handed the 49ers another touchdown right before the half. Now it's 14-3, to three and it really felt like let's just see how close they can keep it. So, you know, like most NFL games, that could have swung towards a huge 49ers victory or a close 49ers victory or even a close Seahawks win uh, based on how a couple of plays went. But to your point about there being a couple of big plays, Honestly, there were only two that kind of distressed me from uh, a fan of the Seahawks defense standpoint. The first touchdown to George Kittle—that was, that was just an awesome play. play. That, that was just such a cool, beautiful play. That's the coolest play it's anyone's just, like, done against It's the just all disgusting.
1: Year. Like that's the sort of yeah. thing where we were talking about. You know, like other teams looking at the Seahawks' awesome vibes earlier in the season and being jealous. Like that was a play that like I was absolutely
0: jealous of. Oh yeah. Totally. So that, that one, I mean, you tip your hat, great play design and you get a guy like Kittle with that much space. It's just going to be a touchdown, but the other Kittle touchdown, uh, which I think was the longest touchdown by a tight end in the NFL this season. That's the one that, that was just a a missed assignment. Um, I love Jordan Brooks and, and I am a Jordan Brooks apologist. I don't know if it was his missed assignment on that or not, he was well underneath that route regardless. Um, usually you see him drop back to a greater depth on a play like that. But even if it wasn't, Kittle had to take a pretty winding route to the end zone. And Brooks was just jogging behind the play the whole time. And I think that a full effort sprint there, uh, he's he's getting to Kittle at the 10-yard line. So that one was disappointing. And then at the very end, the big run from Jordan Mason to to clinch it. It looked just like the Josh Jacobs run in overtime.
1: Yeah, and you know that that Kittle touchdown was definitely the most disheartening because somehow, <laughs> somehow the Seahawks managed to make this a one score loss. So thank they you to them do. for their consistency. Thank they you, f- thank you do, for that. Man. But yeah. um, I mean, like you said, the Travis Homer. Uh, what? Uh, fumble. Uh, <laughs> definitely felt like, yeah, there's your ball game, you know, because the 49ers get yeah. the ball right on the goal line. And I don't know what it is, man, but the second that uh, Dre Greenlaw steps on that turf, he turns into Thor. Jesus Christ. I mean, oh he, like God. ending the 2019 regular season with that uh, division clinching yeah. stop on Jacob Hollister, and now this. Another awesome is- play. Man, I mean, those linebackers are brutes. And I think, you know, the biggest takeaway from watching this 49ers defense is just kind of the juxtaposition because the Seahawks have, you know, they have some good to great talent. I think that, you know, if you were going to protect two guys in a league-wide redraft right now, it would be Tariq Woolen and uh, Uchenna Nwosu on the defensive side of the ball. And then... Everywhere else, it's, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. You want as many blue chips as you can everywhere. Which,
0: by the way, that is now officially Pro Bowler, Tariq Woolen.
1: There you go. Congrats as of about to, an hour ago. Congrats to Reek the Freak. Saw, saw the way of the water this weekend. So, congratulations to Avatar on both fronts. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just kind of after we got so used to watching an elite defense at pretty much all three levels for so many years. It's uh, it's a tough thing to adjust back to mediocrity, um, which might be generous a lot of the time yeah. describing Seahawks defense and watching the 49ers defense dominate at every level, it, there's just there is just Look, so man. much ground to make up. It's not just there, like one spot is. or two spots like you you need so many impact guys to reach a defense of that caliber. It's just they're not close to it, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, they may not put as many guys in the Hall of Fame as that Seahawks Legion of Boom defense did. But make no mistake, as a group, the way that they're playing is every bit as good as those teams were. I am not saying that this is another Legion of Boom because they have to do it for four years in a row. You know, that that's the thing. There have been defenses that have had seasons like the 2013, 2014, even 2015 Seahawks defense. Uh, 2012, of course, the first year they led the NFL in, in points allowed. Um, there have been teams like that, but then you see the regression back towards the middle of the pack the following year, almost invariably with all of those teams. That's what really made them stand out with some of the great defenses of all time is that they were excellent year after year after year. There is nothing fluky about this 49ers defense, and I don't want to turn this into a 49ers podcast, but <laughs> we we really do need to acknowledge what the Seahawks are up against if they want to win this division in the next couple of years. And the 49ers are kicking everybody's ass without a quarterback. You know what I mean? And that's not to say that Jimmy Garoppolo sucks or Brock Purdy sucks. I was actually very impressed with Brock Purdy, but it's a, it's a system that protects the quarterback and it's, it's the perfect marriage between scheme and personnel on offense. Um, they never throw the ball downfield, and so they've built a roster on the offensive side of the ball that doesn't need to, that can still lead the league or come close to it in explosive plays without throwing the ball 40, 50 yards downfield. Uh, you know, you, you got all these yak monsters and, and a brilliant scheme for it. So, you know, the thing I appreciated about that game is it was the litmus test for Seattle in seeing how far behind they are when it comes to, uh, you know, really competing for this division. And, and I think this upcoming week, and we'll talk more about the chiefs game a little bit later on is, is another one of those tests, because you're going to see a very different style of football team, but one that's equally as good. And so, you know, look, we came into the season with a diagnostic approach and going one in four in the last month is, it, it kind of brings me back to that. Like, okay, you know what? Yeah. The, they still can get in the playoffs. And and we'll talk about the odds of that a little bit later on as well. But for right now, there's a very good chance. I would say probably at least a two and three chance that they don't make the playoffs. And that gets us back into saying, okay, where are they at in their progression? And honestly, I think they're further along. even, Even if you isolated just that game last week, then I was even hoping that they would be at this point. It didn't feel like it was a game between a team full of haves and a team full of have-nots. You know what I mean? And the other thing is the Rams looked unassailable last year, and they're garbage now. Like, it happens fast in the NFL. And if the 49ers don't get their quarterback situation right, it can happen fast for them too. You know, on the offensive side of the ball, they they struggled in this one. I mean, they scored 13 points. Let's Let's not mince words. They struggled. But 13 more they scored last time. <laughs> that's exactly right. And again, what throws this offensive performance into relief is the quality of this 49ers defense. That, that being said, you know, the run game had a tough time getting going. You know, Ken, Ken Walker was able to average four yards per carry uh, onto his 12 carries, which is pretty good. But the Seahawks only had 70 yards rushing. A full quarter of that came on a Geno Smith scramble, which means that the Seahawks only had 52 yards on desired runs all game long, which means the best defense in the NFL knew that they were throwing and got to be really, really aggressive with that. And and the thing that sets the 49ers defense apart from even that LOB defense earlier in the decade or, or a decade ago is their pass rush. Seattle never had Nick Bosa and his impact on the game is just, just incredible. I mean, say what you want about the guy. I, I think he's the most complete edge player in the NFL and like just the sheer bag of tricks that he has. His bag is so deep and he's so explosive and he should have, you know, he should have had a force pick six in that game. So, you know, when you've got a guy like that with his ears pinned back and you're trying to evade him and then throw into the teeth of that defense, it's going to be really hard to be productive. And I, I thought that Gino was okay. All things considered, he completed 31 and 44 passes. That's another 70 plus percent performance. Um, but those 44 passes only amounted to 238 yards or less than five and a half per attempt. Once you factor in three sacks for 31 yards lost, Seattle's yards per pass play dips all the way to 4.2. And of course, the asterisk in that box score was that pick six that didn't count. He did throw the one TD pass to Noah Fant, and that was a pretty sharp throw. But overall, what were your takeaways from Geno's performance on Thursday?
1: I thought he was fine. I thought he was being asked. To do a hell of a lot more than could be expected of him, going against what is pretty definitively the best defense in the NFL right now with no run game and rookie offensive tackles. We talked last week with Griff about how, you know, we've been. Enthralled with how both Abe Lucas and Charles Cross and the O line as a whole had played for the majority of the season, and now they've reached the point where they've eclipsed the number of snaps that they've ever taken in a season. Especially with both of them coming from such pass happy schemes and being asked to run block so much in Seattle, you know, it's real. It's it's a really tall task to ask that group to hold down what is a again truly elite pass rush you know charles cross was on an island for a lot of the game against nick bosa You saw him flip over to the left edge every so often able because it's like what the hell i have to i have to match yeah. up against this guy now <laughs> it's yeah. like a um a rude awakening every every so often but i mean y- you saw it. ken walker uh you said he had what like 48 yards on on 12 rushes or so like yep. a big chunk of that came on one play you know, and that was nice to see. Definitely, definitely. And, and I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that necessarily wants to devalue an entire performance because of that, but there was just nowhere to run. You know, you talk about, you talk about a front seven that is just dominant in every facet. Like, you know, 49ers defensive line, elite. Linebackers, elite. Secondary is probably the weakest part, and yet they still had guys that were actively making plays on the ball. DK had no room. Every single pass that Gino was fitting into DK, Traverius Ward was just smothering him. It was like running the route for him, and there were some impressive they're, catches.
0: Yeah, they're they're complete. I, I thought Gino was okay, too. I have a question for you. On the gunslinger scale, from... Jameis Winston at the top to Jimmy Garoppolo at the bottom. Where, your impression, Gino, where does he fit in there? Those are some (laughs) wild extremes that you just chose. Um,
1: (laughs) I, okay, so, so Jameis is like the, um, you know, hold my beer Mm chucker, and Jimmy is the, um, I'll hold your scared. beer. <laughs> yeah, like like I'm gonna run out of the back of the end zone, uh yeah. Dan Orlovsky type. I mean, I put G it's really hard to judge because Gino has been so Jamasy in his you know, he talked about it like a week ago after the Panthers game. You know, maybe I'm getting a little too aggressive. I'm I'm glad that there is a little bit of self evaluation going on there. Um but he has been making a lot of those throws. So he's definitely not on that scale close to Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think that he's necessarily like risk averse, but I don't think that the risks that he's taking are regularly putting the Seahawks in a, bad position those those holy shit throws have definitely been climbing over the last few weeks but I think a lot of that has coincided with the fact that they haven't really been able to run the ball and they haven't been staying on schedule and you have that you know impulse to play hero ball a little bit like I have to make a play and the fact that Gino has made so many of those plays like against the Panthers tweeted out that after they gave up a touchdown drive or after they uh, there was like, he threw a pick and then they gave up a touchdown on the first play. And it was like, Oh my God, like it's, it's all coming apart. And then Gino led like an awesome 75 yard yeah. touchdown drive where he's multiple third and wrongs. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's ludicrous. So I think that if the standard that we are now holding Gino to, if you had kind of expressed what that standard is at this point of the season, we'd all be like, Oh yeah. Okay. You just, Incredible success of a year, no matter what. Well,
0: and and we are talking about officially now, Pro Bowler Geno Smith. That's right, which is is wild. Mm -hmm. If you had said that coming into the season, I I would have assumed that like eight quarterbacks got hurt in the NFC for that to even be like a topic of discussion. I mean, people
1: were talking about both Jameis and Jimmy G as being vastly superior to Geno coming into this season.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. The reason that I ask is is this: I think coming into the season we pegged Gino as more of a game manager. And and frankly, it's kind of how he played last year in relief for Russell Wilson. Um, And then we didn't have anything to go off of in the 10 years prior to that. So, uh, you know, I think it was only natural to say, hey, he's more of a conservative quarterback. And, you know, maybe that's what Pete wants for this iteration of the team, yada, yada. But Stephen O'Rourke tweeted something out today that I thought was remarkable. Geno Smith's ranks in 2022, accurate throw percentage, he's seventh. Wow throw percentage, he's third. His turnover-worthy throw percentage is 33rd out of 36 qualifying quarterbacks. He is throwing a turnover-worthy throw, however it is that he grades that, on 4.7% of his throws. That's one out of every 21. So I reverse-engineered the numbers. Gino Smith has 472 pass attempts this year. At 4.7%, that gives him 23 turnover-worthy throws, only eight of which have been picked off. My concern moving forward, and I'm still pro Gino, is that interception regression could hit this man like a truck next year because he has had a lot of dropped interceptions this year. And those numbers don't count the nullified pick six from last week.
1: Sure, and I mean, when we were watching that Raiders game, it felt like the entire first half was drop pick, drop pick, pick yeah. that was called in the end zone and overturned because a foot was barely out of bounds. And um, I I'd, I'd be curious to see where those throws were clustered throughout the season because mm-hmm. it definitely, like I said, feels like those have increased in recent weeks as he's been, you know, shouldering more of the load. But yes, absolutely. Like we've we've talked about it. You know, he's completing like over 70% of his passes and his average depth of target is well above league average. So he's, he's been slanging it. Um, he's,
0: he's been Brett Favre this year in his approach to the yeah, game yeah. is, is my point. And that You're is making up for last time. He's making that up for I saw last coming. <laughs> he is, he, yeah, he is willing to risk the dollar to get another dollar. And, and that has worked so far. It's just, it's going to be a little bit of an itch in the back of my brain though, moving forward, because you know, you just, you just can't have 5% of your throws be turnover worthy. And, and, you know, like I said, I don't know how that gets graded exactly, but it feels right. You know, doing the show every week, writing the article immediately after the game, it does feel like every single game, there's one or two throws where I'm in the Geno Smith section. I'm I'm writing about like, Hey, he got away with this one (laughs) and he's not going to always get away with those. But what it does do is underscore the value of a run game because I'm with you. I wouldn't be surprised if his turnover-worthy throw percentage was, you know, in the top half of quarterbacks in the NFL through nine weeks, and it's probably close to dead last since then. And so, you know, what what's the common denominator there? First half of the year, they were running the shit out of the ball. They were the second-best rush offense in the NFL behind the Cleveland Browns, and they've been bad ever since then. And that's where – that's where the guys like Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen really set themselves apart is if they don't have the run game going, they can still be excellent. But even Josh Allen, who might be the best quarterback on the planet, has stretches of a lot of turnovers. You know, they, they just happen. And when you're not running the ball, they happen more. So it, it just drives home the point why so many NFL coaches seem obsessed with running the ball. Well, it really does help everything else.
1: And it also hammers home that Gino is Josh Allen. <laughs> so thank you for that.
0: Yeah. Th- that was my ultimate
1: point. Yeah, exactly. I, we, we, we got to our terminus.
0: <laughs> well, we, we talked a little bit about the defense uh, at the top of the show and you know, it has been a while since we've seen both the offense and the defense be good together. Uh, for the majority of the season, the offense has carried a disproportionate amount of that burden. Um, early in the season, I do think the defense played pretty well, even, you know, obviously against the Broncos. We didn't know how bad the Broncos offense was going to be at the time, of course. Um, I also thought that, you know, the defense actually played pretty well in the first 49ers game. They were just dealing with short fields the entire time. But I, I thought they were pretty good in this one. Like like you talked about, there's really only two distressing plays in that one, and And Brock Purdy, who, like I said, I'm very impressed with, he completed his first 11 passes for 89 yards and touchdown, and he did so without Debo Samuel. That was within the confines of those first two scripted drives of the game. You know, they always say 15 plays. I'm sure it goes a couple plays one way or the other from game to game, but head coaches, offensive coordinators, they are scripting their first dozen plus uh, plays of every game. And... Seattle struggled with that, and I think because there's a lot of tape out on this defense now. Recently, they have had a really tough time early in games, going as far back as the Buccaneers game, where they came out, scored right away. Um, I think that was the first time that they had scored on their opening drive all season. We saw it with the Rams. They got pretty much all their points in the first quarter. Uh, We saw it with the Panthers, and now we saw it with the 49ers, but after that, after that, Seahawks held Purdy to 128 yards on just six of 15 passing, The long touchdown to George Kittle, so progress there. You know, I I think the pass defense is pretty good on this team.
1: Yeah, and you saw that in the Rams game, in the Panthers game. Like we've talked about it over weeks. Like Sam Darnold didn't have an incredibly impressive day through the air. You know, like if you look at EPA per play, yards per attempt, all I think he averaged like five, five and a half yards per attempt. John Wolford, after the first couple drives, he looked like a backup to third string quarterback. Throughout the majority of that game, McVay was just a lateral sweep demon that was just, you know, just annihilating them uh, in a way exclusive to Sean McVeigh. Um, please yep. take the Amazon job. Al needs to retire. Kirk <laughs> yeah. needs to go back to college. Uh, but the pass defense has not been the crux of the issue. They just have not been able to stop the run for the most part reliably it's hurt that al woods is out, it's hurt that shelby harris missed time, but the linebackers are not, you know, playing up to snuff. griff was talking about the brain farts that jordan brooks and cody barton are undergoing every so often and those brain farts are killer. like yes. literally losing them games in high yep. leverage moments and you just you just can't be a good defense if your most important players are liable to just completely go smooth brain no thinky in the most important moments so
0: yeah you know uh, assuming they can find some upgrade on michael jackson going to next year I, i wouldn't mind if they just ran back the same secondary as this year Tariq woolen has arrived kobe bryant all indications are that he's going to be very good ryan neal has been excellent Quandre Diggs has had a down year, no question. I think he's still a very good player. And they're presumably getting a healthy Jamal Adams next year. And every time his name has been brought up uh, with one of our guests this season, they have been in lockstep saying, like, look, maybe it was a bad trade, but Jamal Adams is a good player. This defense yep. is better with him on the field. And and so I, f- I feel good about the back end moving forward. But they really struggled against the run again. And it wasn't as gruesome as – some of the other games and you know i i wondered if they were going to give up 250 yards on the ground because the 49ers are so good at running the football they didn't it's weird that 170 yards allowed on the ground feels (laughs) like a win yeah (laughs) you know what i mean because 170 is really bad like if you average allowing 170 yards per game over a season you would set the nfl record for yards allowed on the ground progress in a season so that's right so like if you were to prorate that over the season, you'd have the worst run defense in the history of the sport. And that was progress from what they've been doing over the last month. And that's, that is, it, it, it's getting worse. And and that part is a little bit, it's a little bit tough to swallow. Um, they've given up 1,008 rushing yards in the last five games. 202 rushing yards per game. It's really, really, really difficult to win when you're doing that. But, you know, I I think it's too late in the season to expect much improvement in that regard. Um, That being said, I think there is a slight upside to having one glaring weakness, and that's that it really silos your approach to the offseason. We'll spend a lot more time looking at this uh, in a deeper way after the season's over, but it's not like Seattle's losing because their boat has a bunch of holes in it that need to be plugged. I think it's pretty safe to say that the difference between this team being 500 and being a legitimate threat in the postseason is, is this putrid run defense? Everything else has been anywhere from pretty decent to borderline great, and that makes your off-season shopping list a lot more defined.
1: The same thing on the flip side of the ball: their run game needs to be reliable and sustainable throughout all 18 weeks plus, hopefully, the postseason. You know, yeah. you, they when Ken Walker was at the peak of his powers in their four-game win streak, they looked like a juggernaut, and now. After, you know, three or four or five games of a whole lot of nothing, Ken Walker III is no longer the betting favorite for offensive rookie of the year, and that's maybe a symptom rather than the root of the problem, but that is just, you know, a a good way of exemplifying where where it's gone wrong on the offensive side of the ball too.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, even after the DK Metcalf extension, projected cap space for next year hovers around $100 million. Set aside a good chunk of that for Geno if you want. I want you're talking maybe 25 30 million of that it leaves you a lot of money to spend obviously they've got insane draft capital coming up i would just hammer the interior of the offensive line and the interior of the defensive line like honestly okay. yeah I yeah, would yeah just so that's i, would I was just gonna go ask. all in on that. i was
1: gonna ask you so assuming assuming you've got four picks in the top 45 right say so you've got say you've got like four uh 17 36 and 45 or whatever Uh, like what, what is your ideal allocation of those resources for players for hopefully top tier prospects? What positions are you going?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fully zeroed in on Jalen Carter, uh, with the first pick and, and I hope that Russell Wilson gets healthy enough to help Denver keep (laughs) that pick in the top three. (laughs)
1: Uh, uh, it's just it's just <laughs> such an upside down universe that we're living in what a what a beautiful
0: we got to get brett ripping out of there <laughs> i know, we, we, I know. We, we can't have brett ripping out there they need to nerf him it's, it's enough yeah. we <laughs> One gotta get week Russ, is enough. Russ back out there lose some more games uh yeah so if Jalen carter's there even if it's as high as number two which i think is is the highest realistic expectation i want Jalen carter above the quarterbacks above will anderson Above anything else, if they can lock that down, then after that, you know, you you look at positional scarcity and the cost of, let's say, the 17th overall pick. Um, I'm fine with another interior defensive lineman. I'm not familiar enough with the draft class to pick out someone specifically, but if they went D tackle, D tackle, or D tackle and defensive end in the first round, I would be thrilled, like yep. more thrilled than anything. D tackle edge. And then you see a lot of the best interior offensive linemen. Those are day two picks. It's it's really rare that you see guards and centers go in the first round. And I think Seattle can then hit guard and or center with their next two picks. And if they leave those four picks with four interior linemen, two on each side of the ball, like I, I don't think there's a better allocation of resources than that for this team.
1: I'm with you. I I definitely want, you know, Ideally, interior D line and edge. I would also throw in a receiver on day mm-hmm. two. I would love a receiver in the second round, because we've we've talked about you know before the season or even a few weeks into the season. It was like, who's your third option? Who's your third option? And we kind of came to the consensus that you know the tight end room in uh, in aggregate was that third yeah. guy, but. You know, like Noah Fant has had some moments. You know, he scored a touchdown in this game, but it just doesn't feel like that room has been reliable to help carry the offense and keep them on schedule over the last few weeks, which is, as we know, very, very important. So, you know, Tyler's Tyler's getting a little older, even if he's still really good. They've proven pretty adept at drafting receivers pretty early. Get another guy. Help, help Geno out. No.
0: That would, be, that would be next on my list for sure. No, number three would be receiver. And, you know, it's worth mentioning Seattle's been really lucky with the health of DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett uh, since Metcalf got drafted. I know Lockett had the big injury uh, prior to Metcalf being selected. But, um, you know, other than that, they've pretty much played every game. And it's, it's more than just about filling holes in your starting lineup. Like the NFL – season just takes a huge toll on your roster. And we're going to find out how well Marquise Goodwin can step into that role of secondary option. But I don't think as you start to project to 2023, 24, 25, when we're hoping that this team is competing uh, for a Super Bowl, to be honest, that Marquise Goodwin is the guy that's going to add that extra level to this offense. So I, I would love to see them draft a receiver on day two, even as high as early second round, if, if there's a guy there, first round talent that's waiting for you at pick 35 or 36, have no issue with uh, with getting that guy. Because even if he's not a day one starter, first of all, even the top rookie receivers, and I don't care who you want to talk to, if outside of Jamar Chase, really, uh, you look at the other top receivers, they got off to slow starts. Odell Beckham Jr. got off to a slow start. Um, Justin Jefferson got off to a slow start. These these guys, Cooper Cup, got off to a slow start to his career. Tyreek Hill got off to a slow start to his career. Same with Devontae Adams. Like It just it takes a little while. So they don't need to be day-one impact guys. And if they sit behind Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf uh, until that time comes, great. You look at the best rookie receivers this year. Chris Olave was good from day one uh, from a production standpoint. But the other ones, you know, Drake London and Garrett Wilson and... George Pickens and some of these other top receivers from this last class. It it takes a while to figure out how to beat NFL coverages and how to get on the same page with a new offense, with a new quarterback, all of that stuff. So this is all to say
1: that you still believe in D Eskridge. The hope is still alive. Oh man, I just can't. I (laughs) I know I'm with you. I I
0: can't either. I know it's tough, but you know, it's, it would be nice if there was a reason to believe that he could step in. We just haven't seen that yet. Maybe it happens, but, um, there aren't a lot of game-changing number three options in the receiving game. Even the best passing offenses typically really funnel through their top two guys. I'd say the one exception being the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, Tyler Boyd is an elite third receiver. He'd be a great number two on just about every team. But that's an outlier situation. So, yeah, I, I am with you. If If one of those picks – like, look, if Jordan Addison is there at 17 for some reason – yeah i'm not gonna bat an eye at them taking him you know someone like that sure you know i think jackson smith and jigba is is probably going to be gone by then um those would be the two guys that i consider in the first round but there projects to be a lot of talent waiting for them uh on day two and if they want to use one of those top four picks on I'd be fine with that too good problem to have yeah totally totally let's talk a little bit about this chiefs game Seattle's going to travel to what promises to be a frigid arrowhead stadium. I've been seeing uh, wind windchill uh, projections hovering around zero to 10 degrees. Um, it's going to be really, really cold. And the Chiefs can beat you a lot of different ways. They, as they always seem to, boast the number one offense in the NFL uh, by just about every measure. Last I looked, they're nine-and-a-half-point favorites. I feel... Like that's high. Like I will be betting Seattle to cover that. But how likely is it that the Seahawks can actually put themselves in position to win this game?
1: hundred percent chance they win this game. Okay. hundred <laughs> percent. Not Taking that they the, even in positions. Hammering the money line.
0: Okay. Money line's good. Money line's like a four to one payout. Right yeah. Now. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'll probably uh, no risk and no biscuit, at buddy.
0: Yeah. I'll probably throw a few. Cause here's the thing. You know, we, we talk about it all the time. The, the difference between good teams and bad teams isn't as big as we think the difference between good teams and average teams, which it's still safe to say, that's what Seattle is. I mean, they're seven and seven after all it's small and the chiefs needed overtime to beat the Texans last week. You know, this is, this is a beatable team. They have three losses. It can't happen. And it, it very well may happen. I think cold weather introduces a lot of variants that uh, warmer climbs do not the ball, I mean, just physics. The leather football is harder to hang on to. It gets slick in the cold as the air dries out. Um, the feel is not there. You're not as limber. You know, some, some of the athletic advantages that I think the Chiefs have on their roster may get nullified by this. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see this be a one-score game late in the fourth quarter.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that the numbers really back up my assertion because the Seahawks have won 100% of the games they've played against Patrick Mahomes.
0: Yeah. yeah they've got him figured out <laughs> yeah
1: you know I you know he's a he's a pretty impressive up and coming talent but I need to see more I'm not convinced yet uh, my my standards are high and you know I uh... well, listen everything that we just <laughs> he's a poor said, man's Geno Smith is what I'm trying to say yeah. yeah
0: that's fair that's fair We'll see we'll see if the student can become the teacher yes on Saturday yes. but like honestly though everything that we said about the 49ers defense we can say about the chief's offense yeah they are perfect. They're as close to perfect as an offense can be. They've been running the ball really well this season, which hasn't always been the case with Andy Reed. Um, they lost Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill went to a different offense, might set the record for receiving yards in a season. And they haven't skipped a beat. They've just, Kelsey's still doing his thing. Mahomes obviously still doing his thing. And then they've just divvied everything else up. Juju Smith-Schuster has been a revelation. Marquise Valdez, Scantling still keeps that downfield threat alive. And ultimately what it comes down to is it's really hard to cover anybody in the NFL for four or five seconds. And Patrick Mahomes is really good at staying alive for four to five seconds. You know, I I watch his highlights every week. He has three or four throws that look like the glitches in the old Madden games where it's like running four full speed sprint towards the right sideline and then you do a jump throw to the left (laughs) hash to hit an open receiver like he's doing that shit you know what i mean so that's stuff you just can't game plan for you just sometimes you just have to read and react and hope he makes a mistake
1: yeah earlier you know it was announced that franco harris passed away um Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate especially you know it was like a couple days before the 50th anniversary of the immaculate reception. So went back with and those
0: same two teams playing on yeah. Christmas. I mean, yeah.
1: ridiculous, ridiculous. But, um, you know, you go back and watch that play and that just, it feels like Patrick Mahomes would intentionally make that mm-hmm. play. You know what I mean? Like just, call bank off, bank, of bank the it defender. off of the mask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just right into Juju's right into Juju's number It's just easy yeah. money, easy money, yeah. game winning touchdown drive. But, um, You know, we're such prisoners of the moment, but it doesn't feel like that saying that he is probably the greatest quarterback talent of my lifetime.
0: Yeah. You know, Tom Brady, I think, has cemented his place as the greatest of all time. It's just going to be hard to for anybody, no matter how good you can be the best quarterback in the NFL every single year and you've got a one in eight chance of winning the super bowl, maybe, you know, just, just sheer championship pedigree. I don't think anyone's ever going to catch, uh, Tom Brady, but there have been other quarterbacks in my lifetime that I think are better, have more talent than Tom Brady, uh, Peyton Manning. Um, I mean, if we want to go back, I think Dan Marino. absolutely. Uh, more recently, I think Aaron Rodgers has been the most talented quarterback on the planet for 10 years. You know, he has one super bowl championship and, Mahomes got one early. He got back to a second one. I think he's got a handful more waiting for him. Um, he is, he is that good, but to your point about talent, just raw quarterback playing ability. He's the best I've ever seen.
1: Yep. And what does that say about Gino?
0: You know, honestly, Gino, Gino this year, he's probably 85 cents on the dollar which
1: that is, great, is high praise know? that is, like it is the highest it is. praise and
0: yeah. and we're gonna have to see if he can do that next season again we'll see if that interception regression hits him we'll see if the team puts him in a position to continue to excel i i kind of think they will i think the shane waldron offense is a good one like it's one that i have confidence in from a schematic standpoint it's not a i think it's good enough to let russell wilson run around and make enough plays to win a game i i feel like you stay on script with the Shane Waldron offense. You can score a lot of points. Seahawks have scored a lot of points this year. Um, They're still top five to top eight in just about every metric uh, when it comes to passing football. And, you know, I, I see that as something that can be pretty sticky over the next couple of years, as long as Waldron is there. So, you know, I, I, I don't think the gap on offense between the really great teams in Seattle is that big. And I think the arrow is still pointed up for them. This doesn't feel fluky. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of said in jest, but I think the way Geno's playing really is probably eighty-five cents on the dollar.
1: Yeah, and and just getting back to the game on on Saturday, it you know, screaming Chiefs Chiefs win, but you know, Pete Carroll Pete Carroll Seahawks teams generally have something to say when they're coming into these these marquee totally. matchups late in the season. Um, so it, it's kind of one of those games where it's like Seahawks should lose, so they'll definitely win. That's it does where my it does at. have
0: a little it does a little bit have that feel to it you know more so than the 49ers game did i think um just just the vibes feel it feels more more winnable um that said you know i think these teams play 10 times in Kansas City Kansas City wins eight of them seven of them you know yeah, what i mean i'm with you but but you know i i think most of those games end up being close and close games are one bounce one bad call one heroic effort away from turning a loss into a win and and seattle has the ability to turn a close loss into a close win in this game that said good chance they lose right and so we've said it every week since the seahawks were last at 500 when they were three and three if you've offered us this record before the season we would have taken it without hesitation and even with the late season struggles seven and seven is better than most people myself included forecasted for this young team that's it exceeded expectations bring new expectations and six and three had us anticipating if not outright expecting a postseason berth. now seattle finds themselves clinging to playoff odds listed between 25 and 30 percent most places uh, it's safe to say that unless the seahawks win two of the last three they're out even if they do find two more wins they'll need some help in the form of at least one loss from the lions who are all of a sudden right in the mix having won six of their last seven which is crazy fortunately seattle has the tie break over them uh, thank you, Tariq Willen. They'll need two losses from the Commanders or three from the Giants. If any if Seattle goes two and one over these final three games, any two of those three outcomes, one loss from the Lions, two from the Commanders, or three from the Giants, all of which are very, very possible. Uh, Seattle gets in at nine and eight. So the path is there. My question to you is how likely do you think it is that the Seahawks work their way back into the postseason?
1: Uh so you got at Chiefs. You host the Jets and you host the Rams. That's right. I'm gonna be honest. I'm not all that optimistic, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You know, it's it's a bummer that they collapsed in the softer part of their schedule, and not the, like the Jeff. The Jets are world beaters, but you know they're a, a, they're a good very team. good defense. The they're infrastructure minus the quarterback. It's kind of like San Francisco esque in that in that uh, way. And the Rams, even Shanda if they're the coaching worst coaching yeah. Yeah. Even if the Rams are the worst versions of themselves, that's just going to be a slugfest. So the fucking Rams. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not all that optimistic, independent of the uh, events that would need to take place outside of Seattle's control. So, I mean, it kind of is what it is. If they make that uh, Cinderella run to the postseason, uh who can really say what will happen, but you know, it's, I, I think that the positives that we've gleaned from this year have been plentiful and prominent enough to where we feel pretty damn good, if not great relative to expectation heading into the off season and draft. So I'm I feel I'm more great than satisfied. About
0: it. I feel great about the direction of this team. And you know what? If they end up petering out and they finish eight and nine, God forbid seven, seven, ten 10 would be tough. Seven and 10 yes. would mean they went one and seven down the stretch that, that, will probably make me reevaluate yes. some of how I feel about this team. But even at eight and nine, so be it. You know, uh, a huge step forward for a team that a lot of people nationally were projecting for three to five wins. And I don't think any of the wins that you look at this year are particularly fluky. You know, they all of those wins were repeatable victories. And, you know, I think that if you look at the seven teams that they beat, you line them up against them again this week. Think Seattle is probably. I would favor Seattle to win most of those games again. So um, I do think there's some positive stickiness for them. What I'm really hoping for is that they win at least one of these next two games, so that that final game, week 18 at home against the Rams, carries playoff implications with it. Even if it's a win and needing some help, having that going into that game, preparing for that game, with a playoff berth on the line. It's so Pete Carroll. It's so crucial to how this franchise wants to approach games, giving them that win or go home vibe, like give them one game where it's win or go home, everything on the line, win or lose, I think would just be so good for this team.
1: That was what gave us, you know, the, that good energy heading into last off season because they approached those final few games, even though they were clearly out of, Postseason contention, they were mathematically eliminated. They approached it like these were the most important games that they'd ever played in their lives. And Pete had that team up, and they looked good and well rounded and motivated. And they kicked some ass. They and, kicked
0: ass in those games.
1: And that was with non existent stakes. It would just be great for the psyche of the team and, you know, furthering that confidence heading into 2023 of what is possible and what is realistically to be expected.
0: Yeah. Yep. And, and and I just come back to there's not a lot of holes in this boat. There's two big ones. And you can put all your resources into plugging those, you know, but everything else is solid, man. Like I was expecting this team to make some progress uh between how the twenty twenty one season finished up and how the season finished up but I expected them to need to address more things than I think they'll need to address quarterback. I mean, that's the biggest one, you know, they may not have to address quarterback and that frees up so much capital to address the other things, but to have the secondary seemingly locked in, I did not see that coming at all, at all. I expected them to still, be needing to make at least one major move in the secondary. I don't think they'll need to. I think Jamal Adams will be their major move in the secondary. And then Trey that,
1: Brown having another year removed from his injury could be huge. I mean, you we, can't, you never saw already burns. Never saw already burns. burns. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I think, I think there's a ton of promise and you know, Seattle's not getting blown out. That's the other thing. You know, they had really ugly losses when the vibes were just atrocious last year. They had ugly losses. Yes. Yes. The loss to the Raiders and the Panthers; those were ugly. In that, okay, they should have won those games, and they had lapses that cost them. But they showed up. They they almost won those games. They were in it. You know, uh, this is not a team that's just getting the shit kicked out of them, like a lot of people thought that they would. And and that, frankly, I had a healthy amount of fear for this year. I coming into the season, if you had told me they were going to lose four games by ten or more points, I would have said, yeah, yes, obviously thank God it's not seven, you know, and, and there's, it's been one. I think they've only lost one game by double digits. And that was that first one to San Francisco. I mean, they've, they've been in 13 or 14 games they've played and team this young. I think that's pretty much all you can ask for.
1: Yeah, I'm going through it. And that's, that's true. That first San Francisco loss is the only double digit margin of loss.
0: That's pretty crazy, man. I mean, there aren't that many teams that have one or fewer double digit losses. The 12 and 2 Vikings have two double digit losses. You yeah. know what I mean? Like and we just and we've
1: said it before, but that four consecutive games of winning by two scores, mm-hmm. that's just uh, even even if the rest of the season didn't go as planned, the heights that this team reached when when they're such a young team with guys still figuring it out and there was a bit of a wall that was hit, but this the ceiling is tangible you know
0: totally we we saw it they they tasted what greatness was like for a month they were immaculate you know and we said it at the time every year there's maybe two or three teams if that that rip off four straight double digit wins the great teams don't do that a lot of times you know it it really was like okay when they get everything clicking this team can be as good as anybody in the NFL and there's no reason to think they won't be significantly better last year barring major regression um from some of the positive areas in the game and i I think the most obvious candidate for that is gino but um again you know that turnover worthy throw percentage i'm guessing is heavily weighted towards the last six games five games
1: yep definitely so i mean we'll see how the last few games go uh hope for the best they definitely have it in them to make things interesting uh if not unfortunate but the arrow is still pointing up after everything that we've seen so far this season. So, lots to look forward to this off season no matter what happens.
0: Yeah, no question, man. And this is really fun. I mean, <laughs> we're we're so lucky to get the guests that we do on the show, but I really look forward to the episodes where it's just you and me. Um, man, I Mike, I I just want to say I appreciate you so much. There's no way the show would be where it's at without your effort, your prowess, most importantly, your attention to detail. Those of you listening, you have no idea the amount of effort that Mike is putting into every episode of this show to get everything right from a technical perspective. To have all of that ability that you do and still have the football acumen and the ability to express it that you do, I, I feel extremely lucky to be doing the show with you.
1: Thanks. I feel lucky to be doing this with you as well. And most of most of the effort that I have to put in is managing your Tremendous ego, so <laughs> just a really it really weighs on me sometimes. But no, no, man, uh, it's it's been a, a privilege to be doing this for uh, almost two full two full football seasons with you, and uh, the future is bright for the Seahawks, and it's even brighter for Cigar Thoughts.
0: Oh man, and and Mike and I got some things percolating for the upcoming season too that we're very very excited to be revealing uh, as we get into the off season, but. In the meantime it is time for us to get out of here before we do remember that you can find mike and i on social media i'm on twitter at jackson bevins that's j-a-c-s-o-n mike is the, at mike barwin and the show itself is at cigar thoughts you can also find us on instagram at cigar thoughts nfl and on facebook at seahawk cigar thoughts of course you can listen to this show and read every article at fuels.com slash cigar thoughts and if you're listening on spotify or apple podcast and you like the show drop us a five-star rating leave us a quick review thank you to all of y'all for listening it's been really cool seeing people share their spotify rap on twitter with cigar thoughts podcast at or near the top uh, we know you've only got so much time for audiobooks music and podcasts and it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all please know that by sharing the show on social media and with your friends you're really giving us the energy to keep making this happen we'll be back soon but in the meantime onwards and upwards my friends